welcome back for another episode of Clean Tech Talk, where we at Clean Technica interview clean tech leaders from around the world. With topics ranging from electric cars to climate change communication, you can listen to our full podcast series by visiting our website at cleantechnica.com. Do you want to drive a new Tesla or a Rivian truck or a Lucid Air with 500-mile battery? A new online raffle lets you win an EV dream car while helping the planet. Visit evraffle.org to win. Secan Action Fund uses all proceeds to promote clean energy. Visit evraffle.org. We are here for another episode of Clean Tech Talk. I'm Zach Shahan, CEO of Clean Technica. And joining us today is probably my, my favorite guest over the years. We've had him on many times, Mark Z. Jacobson from Stanford University, professor of civil and environmental engineering at Stanford University, and uh, has done many other things. Normally, we we talk solutions a lot. You know, we, we've we've focused on 100% renewable energy. Your 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 research and your sometimes organizations focused on that sort of pushing the solutions. But today we're sort of we're, we're I think the first time that we're really just sort of focusing on a a naughty topic, a not not solution, but it's been in the news lately, and I saw you tweeting about it, or or maybe xing about it. I don't know what we're supposed to call that now, but uh, direct air capture. So, first of all, let's get a little bit more background. What you know, what you've done over the years, just uh, set the stage for anyone who uh, is not familiar with your work, and then we'll get into that that topic. Yeah, thanks, Zach, for having me on again. Um, So I work on air pollution, global warming, and clean renewable energy solutions to those problems. So I developed computer models to study atmospheric pollution, global climate, and also clean renewable energy. And yeah, with regard to uh, direct air capture, um, yeah, this is a big issue because the federal government in the U.S. just put in a lot of money, I think about $1.2 billion dollars into funding some projects and some of the funding went straight to these oil companies to implement direct air capture. And what is direct air capture, you might ask? Well, direct air capture is trying to remove carbon dioxide molecules directly from the air. Uh, It's not even what's called carbon capture, which is taking the carbon dioxide out of the smokestacks of like coal plants or gas plants or bioenergy plants. Uh, which also has problems, uh, but it's actually trying to remove it directly from the air. And the air is very dilute in terms of carbon dioxide. It's about 420 parts per million. So of every 1 million molecules of total air, which is mostly oxygen and nitrogen, or nitrogen than oxygen, uh, you have 420 molecules of CO2. So it's very dilute. It takes a lot of energy then as a result to extract that CO2 from the air and it also takes a lot of energy to compress it. You need to then build pipelines to pipe the CO2 somewhere. Most of it's used 75% worldwide of all CO2 that is captured today is used for what's called enhanced oil recovery, uh, which is to make oil less dense, pump the CO2 is pumped in an oil well, oil made less dense. So more of it can come to the surface faster, but that process itself, it, causes about 40% of the CO2 that is captured to go right back to the air. Anyway, yeah, we'll so, to the next question. Yeah, you just like rolled through several, several of the key points, sort of like the abstract, we'll say, of uh, of this podcast, I think. But but yeah, the, so the 
the big news item is that that U.S. government funding for for direct air capture. Do you? We'll get into the issue. Of, I mean, you just summarized it all, but we'll get into the issue more. We'll we'll talk about that more and and where it's coming from. But but do you know why the U.S. government is funding this? Do you have any intel on sort of you know how this came about or or even suspicions if you if you want? Well, I mean, I think the federal government and through the Inflation Reduction Act, about you know sixty percent of the funding for that is actually for useful purposes like wind, solar geothermal, battery electric vehicles, energy efficiency, induction, electric induction cooktops to replace gas cooktops, uh, heat pumps, electric heat pumps to replace air and water, gas heaters, and uh, electric vehicles, you know, so things like that, which are useful for a clean renewable energy future. But about 40% of the Inflation Reduction Act funding is going to things I think are not useful at all. In fact, some are cause more problems than they solve, including direct air capture, carbon capture, bioenergy, small modular nuclear reactors, electrofuels, blue hydrogen. And several of these, like at least four of them, blue hydrogen, electrofuels, direct air capture, and carbon capture are all constructs of the fossil fuel industry. These all benefit the fossil fuel industry. And so they push, push them. And how do they benefit them? Well, they give them a cover to not do anything, not reduce fossil fuels. I mean, direct, if you can take CO2 out of the air, then you can claim that oh, you're doing something about your emissions and you can keep you allow, allow your emissions to continue from your fossil fuel plants or any type of combustion plants. Same thing with carbon capture, which is taking CO2 out of the exhaust stream of a combustion source. You can claim while we're doing this, we're, we're working on this CO2 technology to remove it from the air, from the exhaust stream, so we don't need to stop the emissions from the power plant. Same thing with uh, blue hydrogen, which is basically, well, 96% of hydrogen today is produced from natural gas, which in that process produces a lot of CO2 and methane and pollution. And which we've, we and I think others have started calling more fossil gas or methane gas, just because natural gas has a nice sound to it. I don't know. It's just a simple communication issue and la- labeling issue, but I know it's a bit of a trend and we, we've been on that trend. So just to, to yeah, keep that in. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that, it is fossil gas. You're right. And uh, that fossil gas, well, when, so blue hydrogen is adding carbon capture equipment to this hydrogen production, which doesn't reduce any of the methane or CO2 or air pollution emissions from the mining or the transport of the gas. And that is a lot, by the way. It also doesn't reduce all of the CO2. Well, first of all, you need two sets of capture equipment to do this with blue hydrogen. One for the, because you need method, you need natural gas for energy for the producing the hydrogen. So you need carbon capture for that process. And also methane itself is used as the feedstock to produce hydrogen. And so you need carbon capture for that. So you need two sets of carbon capture equipment. You need two sets of pipes because you have to pipe natural gas to the place facility, then you need to pipe CO2 somewhere else. So then you have to like invade people's land to build pipes over their land to send the CO2 somewhere. And who knows what happens to it? 75% goes to this enhanced oil recovery, as I mentioned. But the whole process is a boondoggle because it's so much simpler just to use solar electricity to run it through an electrolyzer to produce hydrogen directly. You don't need any carbon capture whatsoever, no natural gas pipes, no CO2 pipes, there's zero CO2 emissions. 
And it's just so much simpler, cleaner, no air pollution, no mining, no fossil infrastructure. Well, okay, so the federal, so the Inflation Reduction Act, while I was mentioning carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, electrofuels. So what are electrofuels there? When you take CO2 that's captured and then you use them, combine them with other chemicals and use a lot of other energy to then produce another liquid fuel to then burn in a combustion vehicle uh, <laughs> so to replace gasoline or diesel or something like that. And that process is just as bad because you're still producing you're still burning fuels to, and producing pollution. And anyway, the fossil fuel industry is really pushing all these, as many different, these fake technologies as possible in order to stay relevant and stay alive. And so they do infiltrate into, the, they do lobby the federal government and they do voice their opinions very strongly and they have a very strong lobby group. And they do you know, make very rosy claims about what their technologies can do. And then inside of the Department of Energy, there is there are people who are fossil favorite people, and I mean, there's even one from my university who's working in the Department of Energy who comes from the what oh, used to be called the yeah we had a department department at Stanford called the Petroleum Engineering Department, and they conveniently changed their name to Energy Resources Engineering, oh, but still do a lot of petroleum engineering. <laughs> and, wow! And yeah, and they're funded. They're the whole. There's a lot of funding from uh, the natural gas. It used to be this. There's a whole funding organism called the Natural Gas Initiative at Stanford. In fact, and out of that, yeah, you get people percolating in the Department of Energy. And well, there used to be much so more of a push for as well for natural gas Sorry? as a bridge fuel and all this. Uh, you don't hear that talk as much anymore, uh, but it's still, you know, it, there's still a lot of effects or after effects or, or, or ramifications from that kind of that long-term push. And I will come, I'll come back in a moment to just the long-term push from the fossil fuel energy to, to do this kind of thing. But just focusing on the inflation reduction act, I hadn't really seen that discussed that, you know, like 40% of it is, is this kind of thing. And of course, you, you know, you're the expert, you're, you're, you're the, I'm not surprised that I'm learning something from you today because I always learn something from you. But I think it clearly it's, it was a very big, it's a, it was a huge political uh, bill. It was in many cases, the biggest uh, climate uh, legislation ever passed in the US. Uh, a lot of great stuff in it. But we all knew, I mean, I think most of us didn't expect it to ever happen because it was being held up by Joe Manchin and some others that were like, you know, tough. You were like, how are you ever going to find a solution with, with, with these people? Do you think, I mean, do you think this was all just like, I don't know how to phrase it actually. Like, do you think that he, he and his, his sort of colleagues in the fossil fuel friendly industries and, and others worked really hard to, to get this, like, like they were happy to pass the overall legislation as long well, as they were pushing, of, there was pushing a this forward in there that allowed some of these technologies or increased the funding for them. And so that's why it became so much money. Yeah. So certainly there's, well, I want to point out there's this whole theory. But I mean, but I mean, it's, I mean, I'm sorry. I'm just, I wasn't phrasing my thing. So I just want to, they, so my question, not just, do you think they, of course they snuck it in to, to get it passed, but do you think that they really want this so much that they were like happy to get this legislation passed to get this kind of 
long-term funding and delay? Is Was this a big thing they wanted, do you think? I, well, I can't really speak for any individual, but I, uh, just from my understanding, there, yeah, there was a compromise that really made the fossil fuel industry people happy to some degree because they, there was a lot of funding going to carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen, electric fuels, and say, you know, so there is funding in there for the fossil fuel industry. So that made it pl placated them. Uh, and made it made it more amenable to for people like Mansion to pass it. That's just my theory. Because I mean, they also I mean they have financial risks and financial challenges coming up as we transition. Is this something? Is this a big help for them? Basically, is this something that's going to really help? Um, or, or is it? I think it, it's a really good in terms of covering up what's really going on, and so it really does help from the visual from the optical point of view, and to try to like. You know, they can now say, oh, we're doing something, you know, stay off our backs. And that's what they're doing. I mean, they they basically say, we, you know, we're investing in this, we're pushing this. Um, and so that, you know, so they're going to keep doing this. This is a, well, but it's all part of what's called, I call all of the above policy. I mean, this policy has been around, it was in the Obama administration, where you just, it's just, let's try everything and hope something works. And there are people you know, who are legitimate you know, non-fossil people who also support carbon capture and direct air capture because, I mean, this is the main problem that I want to talk about today is that, I mean, this thing just does not work. And yet some people believe it does, it has some potential. And, but it just frighteningly, frighteningly is, makes things worse. It emits more CO2, causes more CO2 to go up in the air, direct air capture does, yeah. than if you don't do direct air capture. Yeah, I definitely want to talk about that more. But was there anything left on the political side? I mean, I mean, of course, politics is messy. And and I mean, you knew it's not going to be a perfect bill. It's just interesting how much of it got put in. And yeah, if there's is there anything more to say on the fossil in industry side or or we'll switch to the actual? Well, I mean, I, mean, I think we see this not only in the Inflation Reduction Act, but we see that in states and municipalities where you, you see the fossil fuel industry trying to push different forms of carbon capture, direct air capture, blue hydrogen in particular. Like in New Mexico, there was an effort by the gas industry to push hydrogen into homes and as a way of you know mixing some hydrogen with natural gas. So kind of mix it, this is another one, mixing hydrogen and gas in pipelines to take them into homes. So you're going to be burning hydrogen and gas instead of just gas. And you get the same kind home. of push in the UK and parts of Europe, right? This is the same. Yeah. Yeah. It's going a lot in, in Europe. And in fact, there, and then there's another one that's like in the upper Midwest in five states, including Iowa, Nebraska, uh, Minnesota, North Dakota, and South Dakota, you have 34 ethanol facilities and there's proposals few proposals one particular one is to link 34 different ethanol facilities uh, together through a 2000 mile pipeline and then they'd connect the co2 from the fermentation process of the ethanol through the pipelines and then pipe it to north dakota and dump it underground now first of all aside from the fact that the pipelines don't exist and you have to then invade people's land to build them in fact, in two states, I think North and South Dakota, they got permission from judges just to walk onto people's property and take surveys without even their permission. And I mean, you imagine now having to build this, all these pipelines and for what? For ethanol, which is a completely inefficient fuel that, and you can- This I mean, is I so 1990. 
<laughs> well, yeah, and I did the study, right? So you, know, you can, and they want to spend this huge amount of money, billions of dollars on this. And it turns out if you spend the same amount of money to build wind turbines just to provide electricity for electric vehicles, get rid of the ethanol factories, no pipelines, no pollution from the ethanol, which itself is a, it causes a lot of pollution and CO2, that, that ethanol, whole ethanol factory causes pollution in addition to the CO2. And there's a lot of other CO2 sources aside from the fermentation process that they're capturing from. But anyway, if you, people could spend the same amount of money on, if you buy wind turbines for electric vehicles and you use that in a Ford F-150, for example, Ford F-150, they have a flex fuel version, which is runs on ethanol and an electric version. So you can compare them exactly. The people would save, individuals who use the F-150 would save about $45,000 over, well, over a 30 year period, if you buy two generations of these, over a 30 year period, save $45,000 in fuel. And even if the cost of the car is 10,000, 15,000 more, which it's, it's not, well, it's about 10,000, but then there's tax credits. You just save tens of thousands of dollars. You eliminate 100% of CO2. You eliminate 100% of air pollution from the ethanol process. And you eliminate all the need for pipelines. And you eliminate the uh, 34 ethanol factories and all the uh, process of producing that ethanol. Point is, is that there are so much better, there are many better alternatives that are more cost-effective, cleaner, that actually help solve the problems than trying to capture CO2. Yeah, and, and who did that study? Um, I did the study. Oh, okay. <laughs> of course you did. <laughs> but I thought you mentioned someone else. Uh, cool. So we'll have to look and get that one because I, I don't recall seeing that. But uh, yeah, that's, I mean, that's just another element. Yeah. But yeah, there was one more thing. Um, so the fossil... The fossil fuel industry has been pushing this stuff for for as long as I remember. Based, I mean, how, how long back have they been pushing direct air capture and carbon capture and storage? You know, separately, uh, they're different. Well, yeah, carbon capture is a bit older. I mean, this has been going on since 1990s, mm-hmm. early 2000s. Started picking up in the early 2000s. That's what like I car- thought. And how much has yeah. it changed since then? Not a whole lot. I mean, it's, it's, I like I say, I mean, they, yeah, you can see these studies, they make a lot of assumptions, except they do have some facilities up, but they're mostly for enhanced, um, you know, they're in the United States, there was one coal fire power plant that was built. Well, there was, there was an existing coal fire power plant and they added carbon capture equipment to it. And that was in Texas. And it's, they spent a billion dollars for the carbon capture equipment. But just to show you how inefficient this whole system is, and this was supposed to be the cutting edge plant. It, was, it became active in 2016. And they, they take so much energy that they built a natural or fossil gas plant just to provide the electricity to run the carbon capture equipment on the coal plant. And so then they built Jeez, natural um... gas pipelines or fossil gas pipelines and at the drill for more um, natural gas or fossil gas. And the carbon efficiency was only, capture efficiency was only about 65% average over three years. It wasn't 90% like they claimed. They used the carbon that was captured for enhanced oil recovery where they lost 40% of the CO2 right back to the air. When you, and so because they built the natural gas plant, they didn't reduce any air pollution from the coal plant with the carbon capture equipment. 
but they had natural gas now, and they, so they had more air pollution. So they increased air pollution. They increased fossil infrastructure. They increased fossil mining because of this fossil gas they got out. And their CO2 reduction was trivial because even though they did take some CO2 out of the exhaust of the coal plant, they had all this CO2 that was uncaptured from the natural gas plant and from the natural gas mining and from the coal mining. And so when you account for that, even before looking at what happened to, during enhanced oil recovery, only 11 to 20% of the CO2 that total CO2 that was emitted in the system was captured. And, but then 40% of that was lost due to the enhanced oil recovery. So we're talking about six to 11% capture rate. And then it was so inefficient and costly in a boondoggle, it shut down after three years. They closed down the carbon capture equipment after three years. But who paid that $1 billion? Well, gets ratepayers pay it. And who pays the highest fraction of their income for electricity? It's low-income ratepayers. Yeah, so I mean, this is how bad this whole system is. I mean, talk about throwing away money and or burning money <laughs> almost literally. Hello, listeners. My name is Scott Cooney, and I am Zach's business partner. I'm the founder of Clean Technica, and I am so, so grateful to all of you avid Clean Tech fans out there. We are thrilled to have been accelerating the Clean Tech revolution for more than a decade now, and really, that all starts with you. The decisions you make and your companies make are driving this revolution. I'm most happy to be able to say that if we at Clean Technica had a nickel for every time we heard someone say that they purchased their first solar, their first EV, their first e-bike, or some other clean technology because of something they read on our website, Clean Technica would have enough money to be a cable TV channel by now. But the thing is, we don't get those nickels. And as a result, our ability to move markets only goes so far. So I have a favor to ask. If you love what we do, and you feel that we're helping move the world to a better future, could you chip in a monthly contribution of five bucks 10 bucks, or whatever you can. If even 1% of our audience chipped in $5 a month, we could really blow this thing up and move markets. So if you feel motivated and can spare the cost of one cup of coffee a month, please go to cleantechnica.com support and sign up through either PayPal or Patreon. Again, that's cleantechnica.com support. Thanks so much. So yeah, I mean, I remember covering uh, some pilot project or, or demonstrate, you know, R&D discussion in the UAE, like, I don't know, seven, maybe more than seven years ago. I don't know. It was a while back. And we had covered it a handful of times, you know, before that, too. And it's it's always pilot projects and, you know, funding to, 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 to develop it, to make it more efficient, to make it work better. And I've just, I haven't really seen anything about it improving or, or getting close. I mean, we're not even we're so far from it being useful that it's not even maybe worth discussing but i mean just just in general uh, you know are like any signs of improvement with it or is it just constantly a oh let's put a billion dollars here into this and we're improving it we're we're making it more efficient we're making it work better is there any like i, I mean i know <laughs> is there any sign of actual progress on the technology itself well there's there's no i mean there's this group aifa that analyze different carbon capture projects. And they found that, I mean, there's never been a capture project with a capture rate higher than 80%. That's just something very concentrated. And half of them are below 57% capture rates. And we're down, down to the largest carbon capture project in the world is a Gorgon project in Australia. And although the capture rate they calculate is around 20 or 30%, when you actually account for there's a bunch of other stuff that's not accounted for. It's actually negative. They're actually 
probably increasing the CO2 into the air sort of rather like than the case that you just sort of discussed. So, so yeah, so we're ma- we're mixing carbon capture and storage and and direct air capture. So, getting back to that funding for direct air capture, it, you said it was two point one billion or one point two billion. What was the? I think that initial. Well, there's an initial allocation for one point two billion for these two plants. I think they're in uh, Louisiana and Texas. And there, but I think there's more money coming for that. So maybe five billion total. And this, this money is supposed to be. Like, like it's supposed to be useful for for what? What is it supposed to be achieving? Well, they're building plants that are, well, they're supposed to be test plants for direct air capture. But keep in mind, like carbon capture, you're dealing with CO2 that's from a concentrated stream, relatively concentrated stream. So like an exhaust stream. Whereas, and, we already, and we already can't do that well. Yeah, <laughs> we already know that the efficiency of the Efficiency of that is ridiculously small. Now they want to take CO2 directly from the air when it's even more dilute. And as a result, it actually takes more electricity per kilogram or ton of CO2 that you capture to to capture that CO2. Then on top of that, you still have to compress it to push it through a pipeline. So, so yeah. Okay. so, so just just get technical. I'll let you get 100 technical now. Again, you talked about it at the beginning, but you know, for most of us, we need to hear this a couple of times to understand what you're saying. So, explain again why technically this is just a total like this is a total. Well, okay. The simple the simple version is, and this applies to both carbon capture and direct air capture. They both require electricity to run. Okay, you're not you can't get away. Well, we're talking about synthetic. Okay, there are there is what I call natural carbon capture, namely trees, that you don't require electricity to, right? You don't require electricity got, to extract the carbon dioxide. Got palm tree <laughs> pictures behind me, but I have a suspicion they're not the best at capturing. <laughs> I don't know. They yeah. don't have a lot of <laughs> foliage on them. Yeah. Well, yeah. So photosynthesis is, is efficient at car- capturing carbon. And that's how we have vegetation. And that doesn't require energy. And it doesn't require equipment. And there is a, so I'm I'm not referring to that when I'm talking about direct air capture. I mean, that is natural direct air capture, but synthetic direct air capture is what I'm referring to. And so, so it also requires electricity. So you know, most electricity is produced by fossil fuels, but let's just say we're going to use renewables. That's the best case, because if you're using fossil fuels to produce that electricity to try to take CO2 out of the air, you have a lot of CO2 that's already being emitted by the fossil fuels that you have to subtract. But there, you know, even in this plant, in this new funding uh, for the Texas and Louisiana plants, they're claiming they're going to use solar electricity. So let's take that. The best case, that's the best case, using renewable electricity. So the question is, if you right now we're, we have to transition the world to 100% renewable electricity and heat for everything as fast as possible. Ideally, by 80% by 2030, 100% by 2050. We're only a few percent of the way in. And, you know, there's, well, there's not only the electric power sector, but we have to transition buildings, industry, transportation. So when we account for that, we have a long way to go. So we need every bit of electricity we can, renewable electricity we can, to replace a fossil fuel source. So every bit of electric, renewable electricity that's produced today if it's 
used for fossil to replace a fossil fuel source, that's good. But if you're using it instead to run a direct air capture or carbon capture, you're preventing that renewable electricity from replacing a fossil fuel source. So let's compare the two. So that's what you're comparing with. You have there's no way around it. I mean, if you're taking, you know, let's say 10 gigawatts of solar electricity and you're using it for direct air capture, you're not using it to replace a coal plant or a gas plant. Yeah. And, I, and so you is, have to. Comp- it's a bit of a side topic, but we covered cryptocurrency for a bit, crypto, crypto mining. Yeah. This was, yeah this was the, the thing that drove me nuts is people didn't get the, the idea that. You can't just say, oh, we'll do it with renewables, which they weren't anyway. But uh, you can't just say that because, you, you know, you try to explain. You need to grow renewable capacity for the existing electricity uses. You can't jack up demand a, a ton and say we'll cover it with renewables when you need that renewable, that new renewable generation capacity to replace fossil fuel power plants, to power electric vehicles, etc. You know, so just it's a it's a simple concept i think but it, it was it was something that was very hard to get across and it sounds like this is the same same kind of deal which is you know you can't be yeah it's it's exactly the same thing because it's not only to replace existing fossils but there's also a new growth of energy demand because higher populations and and uh people use more energy of course you know that's another issue but still we have to if every a bit of renewable electricity that we prevent from replacing fossils is going to cost not only CO2, but air pollution, mining, and fossil infrastructure. So in other words, if you're using renewable electricity to run carbon direct air capture, rather than to replace a coal or gas plant, you're preventing that coal or gas plant or to re- that replacement of coal or gas plant to eliminate not only all the mining of the coal or gas, but also the infrastructure, so pipelines, coal trains, coal, you know, coal mining infrastructure, coal plants, gas plants. And you're preventing the elimination of the air pollution from the coal and the gas. And you're also, by the carbon, direct air capture, by the way, so the direct air capture does not reduce any air pollution, does not reduce any fossil mining, it does not reduce any fossil infrastructure. Also, that same amount of electricity that you're using to capture the carbon with the direct air capture you would eliminate more CO2 if you eliminate the coal mining and combustion or the natural gas mining plus combustion. So you're as a result, you are increasing CO2 because you could reduce more CO2 just by re- using that same amount of electricity to replace a fossil plant than to run direct air capture. So you're increasing CO2, you're increasing mining of fuel, you're increasing air pollution and air pollution death and, mor- and morbidity, and you're increasing fossil infrastructure. And it's, it's a not even close. And it's not even close. There's no... It's not even close. Well, it's yeah, not... if you add up... And then if you look at the social cost benefit of using renewable electricity to replace, let's say, a coal plant versus to run direct air capture, we're talking a factor of six to seven higher social cost benefits. So what is social cost? Social cost is the energy cost plus the health cost plus the climate cost. So six to seven times greater social cost benefit of using renewable electricity to replace a coal plant versus to run direct air capture. And this will go on until we eliminate all fossil sources of energy, not only electricity, but any source of combustion or any source of CO2. If 
we if we so long as we have source of combustion or CO, any source of CO2 that can be replaced or fixed with renewable electricity, direct air capture is useless. It has no benefit whatsoever. And then that's not even accounting for then what happens to that CO2 afterwards. As I mentioned, 75% of the CO2 that is captured goes to enhanced oil recovery throughout the world today. Most of the rest will go to these electrofuels. Some goes to soda water, but nobody has incentive to put the CO2 under the ground. There's no financial incentive. Imagine you have, here's look, look at this economic model. You have direct air capture. You have you buy equipment and use energy for direct air capture. There's no income from that. There's no income to take CO2 out of the air. You put it into the ground, there's no income from that. So the only way this is even tenable from a financial point of view is if you're getting subsidized, which is going on right now, this is all a subsidy. So, or they take that CO2 and don't put it in the ground and they use it, somebody pays them for the CO2. And that's why most of the CO2 today is used for enhanced oil recovery because they're getting paid for that CO2, but that's even causing more damage. So there's no financial viable model for this. I mean, I don't even think the DOE thinks about these things. Like where, what are they going to, what is the future? What is the future scenario? How is this going to work financially? If they're putting the CO2 under the ground, who's going to then, uh, how is this going to sustain itself? Yeah. In it's... addition, they certainly didn't look at the comparison of using the electricity for direct air capture versus just replacing fossils. I don't know you know, what they're thinking, except it's, they're not, it's not a thought process. It's really a lobbying process in my mind. Yeah. Well, I mean, just to close on that direct air capture, it sounds like it's like a stack of pancakes of, of problems. Like it's not even just like one comparison. That's a problem or one calculation it's, or one technological issue. It's just like one after another that you're st stacking on top of each other, that it's just like horrible, horrible uh, idea. Well, yeah, and I'll put, put out one more thing. It's like, okay, so back to this financial model. I mean, so if they do do it, if these oil companies or gas fossil companies do do this direct air capture, the way they will pay for it, that'll just mean energy prices are going to be higher. So they're just going to pass that cost on to rate payers. And again, who will pay that? Who pays the highest fraction of their income for electricity or, or energy? It's low income individuals. So this will, it's just a tax it's just a tax on uh, low-income people. Yeah, it's depressing. But there's two, so there's two kind of groups of people, I, I guess we could say that, yeah, I like to sort of discuss now. So so one is there's definitely a lot of very, you know, very climate-concerned people, uh, you know, people who are basically near panic mode or in panic mode with, with what's happening with the climate. And there's definitely some of them who, just they know how bad the situation is getting how we're not doing what we need to do and just jump to the idea that well we really need to figure out how to get carbon like how to how to do this how to, how to suck carbon out of the air how to capture carbon and all of this and it's like this is just critical or else we're not going to make it so this is kind of the the mindset behind it and uh, i know people you know responding in that way you see it a lot it's it's there's quite a i think it's a pretty large group of the very climate concerned people what do you say to like i mean you, i mean i guess we just spent the last half hour saying what you say to <laughs> i mean we said what you say to that people in that space but i guess 
what do you say to the idea that we just have to find a way to do it and we have to put money into it because we have to figure out how to how to do it like well yeah so the the biggest concern i've had heard is that yeah people are worried there's so much excess carbon in the air even if we stop all the emissions we still have to remove a lot okay that's fine but first of all take it, stopping the emissions of 1 ton of carbon dioxide is the exact same as taking 1 ton out of the air so until we stop emissions if it's easier to stop the emissions itself, or if it's more beneficial, more cost-effective, then that's what we should do. So there's no, I mean, that argument does not fall and there is air capture. And there is still, of course, the issue of planting trees and that kind of thing, which yeah, is- well, Yeah, there, so there are other, I'll get to that in a sec, but you can't rely, that is not an argument for direct air capture, because as I just mentioned, what direct air capture is doing, and the same with carbon capture, is that it is increasing CO2. So you can have that philosophy all you want, but if you have that philosophy and you say we need direct air capture, well, all you're doing is increasing CO2 by doing this. So this is just because you want something does not mean it's going to happen by this technology. And yeah, this technology is not designed to, re it's also, you're going to increase air pollution. You're going to increase mining. This technology is not designed to reduce air pollution. It's not designed to reduce mining of fossils or fossil infrastructure. And it very inefficiently reduces CO2. So why would you do it if you're going to increase CO2 because you're, it's an opportunity cost? That's the first thing. Second thing is that uh, CO2, first of all, will, if we eliminate, if we do eliminate 80% of emissions by 2030 when 100% by 2050, as we need to do worldwide, and this is all emissions, CO2 will come down naturally to about 350 parts per million by 2100. Now, it's a big if if we can reduce those emissions, but that's the best we can do is to reduce the emissions. Because CO2 doesn't, even though it has a long lifetime in the air, that lifetime is on the order of 70 to 80 years. Well, it's, when you're increasing CO2, the lifetime of CO2, the e-folding lifetime is on the order of 50 years. But when you're decreasing CO2, the lifetime extends, gets, gets protract, uh, prolonged to about 80 years or so. And so if we stop emissions by 2100, CO2 should get down to 350 parts per million. Third, CO2 is only about 45% of global warming issue. And you know the next is black carbon is the second leading cause of global warming, which has a very short lifetime of on the order of weeks to months. So that is actually the most effective method of slowing global warming is stopping black carbon emissions, which come from diesel exhaust, jet fuel exhaust, biomass burning, kerosene burning, uh, any type of uh, high temperature burning it could be wood or fuel or anything. Well, I and just, those so, two things are very helpful. I think very reassuring kind of points because there is this kind of, I think just general assumption that it it's once it's up there, it's up there and it's not going away. And yeah, but so I think these are very helpful comments. I mean, all three points, but the first one you spent about 30 minutes already explaining. So but but I think then you put it in a really good nutshell, like a sort of TikTok style version that could be useful for, for just quick communication. But then two and three are especially useful that I think don't get discussed much and are very helpful. Yeah, most people are, don't even know that anything aside from CO2 is affecting the climate. And so, but CO2 is it's about 45%. So, you know, we need to, but let's say we get to the point where we eliminate all fossil fuels, then people argue, then we should take use direct air capture. But even at that point, we there's other lower hanging fruit that you want, you want to do an evaluation at that point to see whether other technologies and methods 
are better. So for example, what's if we eliminate all energy emissions, there's still non-energy emissions, including open biomass burning. I mean, that produces lots of CO2 and particles, including black carbon, brown carbon, which cause warming and methane and all sorts of other gases that in air pollutants. So that's that strategy of actually reducing biomass burning is a very important strategy that's not even talked about. Then, and also increasing reforestation and reforesting and growing trees, you know, to reduce, to increase carbon uptake. Um, and also then methane from agriculture, from landfills, from rice paddies, digestive tracts of sheep and cattle from manure, uh, nitrous oxide emissions from fertilizers. Halogens are about 9% of all global warming. And those are you know, trying to rein in more halogen emissions. So all of these are easier to address because some of them are policy direct, direct, only policy don't require huge amounts of energy or require just bags and a few uh, local pipes like a landfill to trap methane, for example. So they really, the question is, should these things be uh, promoted you know, in favor instead of using energy and equipment for this direct air capture. But that discussion, you know, we should always be addressing these other sources as well simultaneously as trying to reduce emissions or to replace fossil plants for energy. But, you know, it's really direct air capture should not even be discussed until we've eliminated all the fossil plants. Excellent. Really good responses. So really helpful. So the last, the the other group that I was, you know, thinking of is, yeah, the governmental, the policy people and i mean of course there's some overlap here but generally speaking is that all of all of the above strategy which obama implemented i mean basically to get stuff done i think it was the i mean the idea was we have to make compromise to get stuff done in politics politics is very annoying business because not like what's best what's right it's like what what can we do what would we have to do to get stuff done and it's uh, it's infuriating it's very it's, even for the, those who you know spend their careers and lives in politics trying to do good it's just a very difficult difficult thing because of that but i i mean i think there are people with good intentions who believe just we should do everything we can and they're not very scientific necessarily and so it's like oh the more the better on types of solutions without sort of understanding well no the more the better on the good solutions and just drop these bad solutions but or non-solutions but i don't know i mean there are people in the department of energy who you know i know i'm sure there's many that you know how much do you feel like this is just something they just it's just part of the it's part of what it is it's just you're going to have an all of the above strategy as long as Republicans and and we can say dirty Democrats or uh, Democrats uh, representing fossil interests are have have so have so much influence, or how much do you think it's it's people who are just trying to do, trying to 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 find every solution possible with good intentions and just making the mistake of not understanding the science and the math behind it. Well, I think in this case it's. Certainly, there's a mistake about understanding whether direct air capture has any benefit or not. I think that's a, a mistake people, not many people know, even though there is information out there in scientific papers, not a lot of people know about it. And so it tends to be very a, scientific people <laughs> who discuss this. Like, I know, I mean, we have 
Michael Bernard on our team, of course, has talked about, has written about this many times. And there's, but it's, it's very scientific and engineering minded people who who discuss this. And I feel like it's a topic that's very hard to get any, to expand beyond that kind of group, right? Yeah, that well, that, so that's part of it. I, but I don't know if it's willful ignoring science in favor of like, with the hope that we'll do, even though there's problems now, we'll do better not really understanding that it's not even designed to do better and you can't do better with this. I th- and then, but I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of push at the same time for this, all of the above. Let's just try everything. And there's also a push by the fossil fuel industry. So let's appease the fossil fuel industry. So there's really three things going on. There's yeah, there's kind of ignorance of what's actually the science of it. And there's, there's this kind of pushing of all of the above and there's a little bit, there's lobbying for some people favoring the fossil fuel industry. And it all just combines enough for uh, more than a billion dollars of funding for a wasteful, harmful direct air capture project. Well, that's the start. Yeah. That's just the start of the funding too. Yeah. How much, I mean, do you know how much more is potential? Um, I don't remember the numbers, but I thought, I thought it was maybe 5 billion. And do you know how much potential there is for like, you know, stopping that for like, you know, disrupting that pipeline of money for that and sort of you know, end, ending those projects before they start or what? I, well, I don't know. I just, I can't just do your best, <laughs> do your best. And uh, well, whether okay. yeah, I'm sure you could, I'm sure you could, if people get in charge, they can stop the funding, you know, after each year, they can probably cut off the funding at any time. I mean, I know as long as the funding hasn't actually been sent to them, if it's, you know, if it's, if it has to be requested every year, then they can stop it each year. But if it's already been sent, then they probably can't stop it. Well, I think we covered everything that was on my mind for it and a lot more because, you know, you always bring a lot to the table. I think, uh, yeah, any just any closing remarks. I mean, I think you, you've you've summarized it in a few ways because I kept asking you to, to, say, to say it again in different ways. But I think it was useful to, to try to hammer the point home. But are there any final Final remarks on these topics. Well, I can just say that we don't need direct air capture. I mean, our, as I mentioned, our first line of defense should be to transition everything to clean, renewable electricity or energy and, and provide that energy and electricity with wind and solar and and go to electrification of vehicles and heat pumps and battery storage efficiency. So that should be our where we should put all our effort into. And... That and we don't need this direct air capture. It's just not going to, you know, if, they, if we ever get to a point where we've eliminated all combustion sources, okay, then we can have time to fiddle around with this. But we don't have time to fiddle right now. And I'll take a slight risk here, but maybe preview another. I would like to do another uh, episode with you about green hydrogen. But what's your like your top line elevator pitch takeaway on the state of green hydrogen and green hi- hydrogen uh, marketing right now? What's this? Well, green hydrogen, which is hydrogen produced from clean renewable electricity through electrolysis, it's useful for certain applications like steel production, green steel production, uh, ammonia production instead of using fossil gas, and certain long-distance transport like long-distance aircraft or ships potentially. There's going to be a competition with batteries, of course. And then some grid applications, the not... I mean, battery storage will be dominate grid applications, but it could be some combinations of green hydrogen uh, with battery storage. But not we don't want hydrogen going into homes for heating homes. We don't need it for passenger vehicles. We don't need to burn it. 
So they're very limited applications, not everything under the sun, very few applications and, uh, and only green hydrogen, not all the other colors. Yeah, <laughs> blue hydrogen and gray. And yeah, there's, I don't know, the thing they create a new one every year. But uh, yeah, well, thank you so much, Mark. This has uh, been a pleasure and really uh, informative. I I think, personally, I think this could be very helpful for a lot of people who are in a kind of panic mode about the climate situation and, or at least, you know, very concerned about it and um, helps to explain why we don't want to throw money at this. So thank you for that service and everything you do. Happy I saw your your tweet about it by chance. And uh, yeah, keep it up. Appreciate it. Thank you, Zach. Really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Clean Tech Talk. Join us next time to get your electric fix. If you would like to sponsor our podcast, send us an email at accounts at cleantechnica.com. That's A-C-C-O-U-N-T-S at cleantechnica.com. Thanks. Thanks.